America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. America without her soldiers would be like God without his angels. Claudia Pemberton. Episode 12, Greg's American Story. On today's episode, I have the immense pleasure of having Colonel Greg Gatson. And after doing a deep dive on him yesterday, so I can learn a little bit more about him, I have learned so much about him. He is wise. He is resilient. He is patriotic. And he's a hero. And I cannot wait to hear his story. So welcome, Greg. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor, a pleasure and honor to be on the, uh, your podcast here, We the People. That's right. That's right. Well, I want to begin with how your story starts. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up and how you felt about America growing up. I, it, it, like all of us, our, our, our lives start with, uh, with our parents, the, the, you know, the, the, the ones that brought us into the world. Um, you know, my parents were born and raised in a small town of, uh, in the low country of South Carolina called Walterboro. Um, in the mid 40s, they were born, both born in 45. And so um, they were born in the, they were born and raised in the Jim Crow South. Um, um, you know, they, they grew up in a, in a segregated society where they did not enjoy the, um, you know, did not enjoy uh, what our, our constitution guaranteed us. Now, I, I share that not out of, um, not out of bitterness, not out of anger. Um, actually, I think it's quite impressive because as they started their family with my sister and brother, you know, they shared those experiences, those lessons, but the one thing they didn't um, uh, impart on us was hate. Um, uh, they always taught us to, uh, to treat uh, all people with dignity and respect and, and, and to, to deal with individuals on an individual level. Uh, you know, if, you, if, you have, if you're dealing with racism, you deal with it, but just don't assume that everybody that's different from you is gonna, you know, have it in from you. And, and uh, I, I, I couldn't have, uh, you know, gotten a more valuable and strong lesson. And, you know, you talk about resilience, you talk about overcoming um, them sharing their experiences and, and their stories um, provided me uh, a, a roadmap of understanding and building my own resilience. I, uh, my parents both graduated from uh, Howard University and a, and a neat irony for, for me is because I went to West Point and, um, but I was an alumnus. It was a Civil War general, General uh, Otis, our Oliver Otis Howard or Otis Oliver Howard, who was an amputee, lost his arm in the Civil War. Um, he actually founded Howard University. That's why it's named after him. And so, um, 
you know, we just have, there's another connection, not that I need another connection with my parents, but the, the irony of, of, of the goodness of people and, 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 uh, and creating opportunity, I, I could have never imagined that um, it, from an education standpoint, my, myself and my parents' path would, would be so connected. Um, I, my dad graduated from pharmacy school and he worked for Eli Lilly Company. So we moved around, long story short, um, as opportunities grew and changed for him, we moved quite a bit through my first nine or 10 years of life, but we were finally settled in the Tidewater area of Virginia. And um, my parents always stressed upon me doing well in school. And, and like many teenagers, uh, I felt like I knew better and um, could, could do it my way. And I wanted to do it through football. Mm. Um, I wanted to be a professional football player and I was gonna go to a big name school and earn a scholarship and go into pros and, and, and be a champion. But, you know, we all know in life, no plan survives first contact and, and, and mine didn't either. And so, um, Although I did well in high school football, I was actually the captain of my all-star team here in Virginia. And, and I got all the accolades that anyone could have gotten, but um, I was probably undersized and under speed. And, and so none of the, none of the, the pomp and circumstance that went along with my accolades showed up and materialized in the form of a scholarship. And I was, I was pretty devastated a high school, uh, a, a coach from West Point came to my high school to, coach, to recruit another kid, not even me, another kid. And my coach told him that, told him about me and just had him take a look at me. And, and so they invited me to go on a recruiting uh, trip. And and uh, only question I asked was, uh, do you play Division One football? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, I'm coming here. <laughs> Now, I went there with a bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I promise I'll get short, but I went there oh, with a dead. bit of, it's because it really kind of set the stage. I went there with a chip on my shoulder, uh, you know, having made the choice to go to a service academy meant that I was not going to pursue a professional career, um, but I didn't care. I just wanted to show everybody that I could play football at the highest level, and uh and that and and football was all you know everything else was a means to an end i e my academics and and learning to become a lieutenant was sort of secondary to being a football player. I played football there for four years. we had you know some very successful seasons and uh and I got commissioned in in nineteen eighty nine I would meet my bride of this coming year thirty two years oh congratulations that's cool and um and that's how our Army story started. What position did you play? I was an outside linebacker. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your military experience. I, well, I think that military has been a huge part of your life. Absolutely. 26 years, three months, and nine days is, is my time in uniform. And that doesn't count the, the time at West Point. And I would do it all over again. I, I enjoyed uh, um, um, I enjoyed being a soldier and leading uh, leading soldiers. You can see the photo behind me. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the men and women that uh, that I would go to Iraq with, um, 
you know, nearly 15 years ago. Uh, so my military career, I was, uh, I was commissioned in 1989, as I said, and, you know, I, I as a field artillery officer, um, I would get to my, uh, um, I was stationed at Fort Sill and three Corps artillery and, um, in, 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 in early 1990. And, uh, by, by the end of the summer of 1990, uh, or early fall, I was in, the in the Gulf in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, poised as part of uh, Operation Desert Shield that would transition to Desert Storm. So right off the bat, you know, I was in the breach, so to speak. I served there for four years. Um, I would go into Fort Bragg where I served uh, for five years. Um, was nearly involved in the invasion of Haiti, but Aristide uh, um, uh, stepped down so we didn't have to um, we didn't have to take the uh, invade Haiti. Would uh, do a couple years here in D.C. and then Leavenworth. The uh, next uh, uh, operational assignment was Hawaii. I was there for four years, and I would deploy there. Uh, Operation Joint Forge to Bosnia Herzegovina, which was a st um, stability operation, and then Operation um, Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan for one year. And those were combat uh, operations. And then um, I was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, selected for Battalion Command. I would command at Fort Riley, would stand up a brand new unit I, I, in, uh, in civilian terms, a startup. Uh, so um, I, I, I like to often refer to the, uh, the movie We Were Soldiers when you think about how more creating a new unit, having to, you know, uh, start from scratch. Well, that was... Uh, that was the brigade I was in, and all six of us battalion commanders had to had to start from scratch. And we would deploy um, in early '07 as part of the surge to Iraq. Ultimately, I was wounded in in May of 2007 by an improvised explosive device, and and ultimately uh, um, uh, those uh, injuries uh, uh, cost me both of uh, my legs above the knee and and. Um, in normal use of my right arm and hand, but they're, they're in pretty good shape. Um, but I was blessed. I contend, you know, I've been blessed all my life and I was blessed to be, um, to, I would petition um, and be approved to continue my service on active duty in spite of my injuries. I saw that, uh, that was amazing. Uh, I read yeah. that. Yeah, I uh, uh, my first job once I was approved to stay on active duty was the director of the United States Army Wounded Warrior Program, and uh, and then the Army's uh, greatest sense of humor. Um, I was actually promoted from lieutenant colonel to colonel, and then in my last assignment, I was responsible for running a military base uh, for here at Fort Belvoir locally, and then after two years of that, I was ready to be done, so I retired and in September 2014 with 26 plus years. Now, I don't want you to talk about anything that makes you uncomfortable. And so feel free just to share what you want. Yeah, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm an open book. What do you remember about that day with your traumatic injury? Right. Well, I, I, um, it's a significant day um, for me, obviously, but not not just because of my injuries. Um, you know, um, in early months of 2007, Iraq was, it was extremely violent. 
I mean, I can almost recall daily that that at least one American service member would pay with their lives. Imagine going to work every day knowing that uh, that somebody's going home, and that's uh, um, uh, that's that's tough. Um, uh, and on the, on May seventh. I was, uh, um, on the night of May 7th, I was returning from a memorial service for two young men, uh, First Lieutenant Ryan Jones and Special Sunson, who were, uh, they were part of my brigade from Fort Ryland and they had been killed uh, three or four days earlier. And, uh, and I went to pay my respects uh, at their memorial service. And so I was returning to my headquarters I, I remember that that evening, you know, I was, um, I mean, I was extremely, um, uh, um, I guess, introspective about these young men's sacrifice and really just kind of wondering, you know, is this ever going to end? Is this, is this sac, is this worth it? Are, is, are we over here? Is this worth it? And, and then kind of thinking about their families, like, you know what are what are their families going through? You know they just they just lost two young men and the you know it hadn't even hit the prime of their life and I'm like you know just trying to wrap wrap my mind around this uh, Tina and and then wham you know I'm I'm hit um, so first of all it's the second time that my vehicle's been hit by an IED since being in Iraq so I know what it is. The blast blows me out of my vehicle, and, I'm, and so I'm flying through the air, and I remember hitting the ground, coming to a rolling stop on my back. And uh, I was, first I was just, I was pissed. I was using every curse word in the book. You know, I just like, I mean, like, like really just like, how dare you? I'm, I'm here trying to make life better for you guys, and, and you're freaking trying to kill me. And, and then, um, and then I immediately knew that I was in, um, I was in, I was in bad shape. Like I'm, I couldn't move, I couldn't get up, and and I realized that I'm going to, I'm going to die. And, and I said, I said, God, I don't want to die in this country. And 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 that's when I lost consciousness. Were you in a lot of pain, and were were you with other people? I, I, there were five of us in, counting me, there were five of us in the vehicle, but I was, but, you know, I was blown out of my vehicle. My vehicle kind of kept going until it finally came to a stop. Um, I was vehicle number three of four in a, in a, in a con, in a patrol. And so when my vehicle came to a stop, um, the, the, uh, the, the vehicle behind me obviously saw what had happened to me. And, uh, and First Sergeant Frederick Johnson was the first to arrive at my um, at my vehicle, and he was the one that recognized that I wasn't there, and he would be the one that would find me. I'm over a hundred meters from where my vehicle stopped, um, lying in a pool of my blood, and uh, and then a young uh, a young private in my uh, in, in my uh, in my in my patrol put the tourniquets on my legs, and he is the one that the doctors credit for saving my life. Now, look, I'll I'll go into but just to kind of keep it keep it moving. But I'll just say this: so um, I would go through 129 pints of blood, 129 pints of blood that night. I died six times. I went into arrest six different times uh, that evening, um, 
and and really to put up to give the audience a, a chance to understand how dangerous it was in Iraq. You know, in the month of May, 131 U.S. service members paid with their lives, and over 10 times that were severely wounded, like me. So it was it was a bad situation. Were you scared on a daily basis before then, or was it something that you adjusted to? You, you adjusted to it. I, you know, I I don't know that I could ever say the word scared. No, I'm, I'm not to say I cannot be scared. You're concerned. You're just like, but I think at the end of the day, for me, it was just like, you know what? This is just what it is. I can't you know, I can't let it paralyze me. We got to stay focused on our mission. And you just, and so you, I think you just accepted it. For me, it was just like, hey, this is what it is. We got to, you know. Well, after you said you got hit before, right? Well, the, yeah. The, so the first time it didn't injure me. So I wasn't injured or it just, it blew out a, it blew a hole in my oil pan and, um, blew out my tire. My, I had to get my, I had to be towed back because my vehicle wasn't functioning, but it didn't do any, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't hurt anyone or hurt anybody else. And that didn't put more of a fear in you? No. Interesting. Actually, I was hoping, well, I'm like, oh, it already, ha it happened. So you've had your maybe, turn, right? I, maybe I got, maybe I had, but I had, you know, it was, my boss had been involved in five of them. It was bad. Do you remember very much from that night? Do you remember any of that? You, you said you, you, you died six times. Is that right? Yep. Do you remember any of that night after they put the tourniquets on? Do you remember? Yeah. Anything? Yeah. So, um, so I, um, so I, well, after they got, they got me, uh, first Sergeant Johnson who found me, he resuscitated me. And so, I don't remember uh, Eric Brown putting the tourniquets on my legs, but but I remember being conscious and they were in, in you know, um, and I remember they were trying to pick me up and put me in the vehicle and I was so wet with blood, they couldn't get a good grip, couldn't get a good handle on me. So they had to pull some of my gear off and then they got me in a vehicle. And that is when, when, I, when they put me in a vehicle, um, I basically kind of remember now my legs were still attached, but they're just mangled. But I basically remember almost my my foot, my right foot almost being in my lap. Ugh. And and that and I saw that, and that's when I started getting, I'm like, I'm like, what's wrong with my legs? I can't feel my legs. And I started, I mean, I started going into shock and and um, or I was already in shock, but I started, I started panicking. And they and they did their best. They're like, oh, your legs are fine. Your legs are fine. And they, you know, they were getting me calm. And um, so they get me in a vehicle and, and uh, we're going back to the forward operating base that I, I left. So I hadn't, you know, I left the memorial service. I mean, I was maybe a mile or so outside of it when I got hit. So that, so we were able to go back to that base. And, uh, and, and so, um, they get me into the, the troop medical clinic um, where they're going to start to triage me. Um, and I remember seeing one of my fellow battalion commanders and his sergeant major um, 
uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Weaver at the time and his command sergeant major Eddie Fields. And I remember when they were, as they were bringing me in, I remember the look on, on their face and um, that look told me everything. So I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I, don't, I don't really know how bad it is then, but after seeing them, I knew um, I was in trouble. And um, eventually the brigade surgeon is like on top of me because he's trying to put pressure on my body to help control my bleeding. And I, I was talking to my boss, Colonel Gibbs, and um, I, I remember talking to him, um, you know, really just prom making him promise to, to tell uh, Kim and, and my kids uh, that I love him because I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I, didn't, I wasn't giving up or wasn't quitting, um, but I wasn't sure I was going to live. Um, I knew that I might die. And I just, with my dying breaths, I wanted, you know, wanted to know that uh, I was thinking about my family and, and uh, that was, and that was, and that was all, uh, I remember hearing the helicopter, the medevac coming in to pick me up. And that was my last thing that I remember in, um, um, in bag in Iraq. Uh, I mean, like, the next thing is that I'm waking up in Walter Reed. So, so, so this is like a, about a seven day, six, there's like a, a seven day, six or seven day period that I, I have no recollection. I, I've been able to uh, talk to some folks that, have, that, that touched me along the way. And for instance, um, well, they told me that I was, um, um, when they put me on the helicopter, I was, I was breathing on my own. And it was only like a six or seven minute ride to the green zone. Um, but I went into arrest. They had to intubate me um, in that short, in that short ride. So, and it was just, it was just back and forth. You know, when you get that kind of blood, when you get that kind of blood volume, it's, it's not, I mean, your body cannot take all of that blood because it starts to impact your organs. And so I started, um, I was starting to get to organ failure because of the amount of blood that they were giving me. That's powerful. It really is. No, it's just what happened. So. You're the first person that I've ever spoken to that's had something like that happen. And it's, it's powerful to hear it from you. It really is. You wake up at Walter Reed. Is your wife there? Yes. Yeah, so um, I wish it would be, um, she, um, so she was told the same day that I got wounded. And, and so she would have to kind of unplug, you know, our kids are, you know, you know, follow the ward of uh, an army family and, and, uh, and she gets there. Um, so I, I was, uh, on the 8th of May, I was evacuated to Balad and then, um, uh, which is the Balad Air Base, and I was there. And then I think on the 9th of May, I was transferred to Longstuhl, Germany. And then I would eventually arrive at Walter Reed on the 11th of May. So, uh, so just four days after being wounded, I arrive at Walter Reed. She gets there that day. 
I'm uh, I'm in an induced coma on a feeding tube. Get it. I still have my legs, and I'm having surgery every other day for them to repair my blood vessels and and, and clean up my wounds. So was the first then the first thing wasn't to address the legs. It was to address everything else going on with the organs. Is that why you no, said no, no. Your legs? no, my legs, my legs are, so I did stabilize after they okay. have, you know, after I'm just saying when you run that, you know, like you, you can't, it, it's, uh, I, without trying to, it's, it is highly unusual for someone to get that amount of blood that fast. I mean, like in six hours, because your body, your organs can't take that. Right. Most people's organs will, will, will time out. That that's what'll kill you. So, so you it's not just about oh we got tons of blood we're gonna give you keep giving you blood you 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 won't survive it. But so as I said, I got to Walter Reed on the 11th of May. And I'm going through surgery every other day, and I'm gonna, so I don't. I'm um, I'm in a coma for uh, induced coma for a few days. I eventually come out of that, and and it just I remember just it, whenever I went into surgery and I come out, I just felt like I just was getting beat to with an inch of my life. It was it was a horrible. I was confused. I was dazed. I was just you know. They, they weren't sure if I had a, a serious traumatic brain injury because I was all over the map. How could you not be, right? Yeah. So on the 18th of May, I'm, in, I'm still in the intensive care. The blood vessels in my left leg um, failed. I could no longer sustain blood flow, and I started to bleed to death in the ICU. So the nurse, would, she put a Felix expedient tourniquet on, on, uh, on my leg, and they took me into surgery and they had to amputate my left leg above the knee to save my life. Did you realize that was gonna happen? Did you know that's why they were taking you to the no. operating room? Okay. No, I just, you know, I um, I say get in the near death moments, but I, I, I thought I would. So that morning, I, I know something's going on. I am but I don't know what, I know it's bad, but I don't know what, like, I don't know specifically. I know they're moving me and, um, and I feel like I'm in, like in an elevator. It's just white, bright. It's like so bright. I can't see, but um, my father was in there in the elevator with me at what I believe is an elevator. And one of my mentors um, um, at the time was Colonel Rodney Anderson. And, uh, and so after I get out of surgery and my, my left leg's gone and I'm talking with my wife, I asked where my dad was in, in, um, in General Anderson, Colonel Anderson at the time. And, and she said, well, they're not here. I'm like, well, they, I said they were here. And she says, no. She says, your dad's at home, you know, three hours away. And, and Colonel Anderson's in Afghanistan. And, you know, I will tell you to this day, Tina, they were there with me. I and don't doubt it. I have total faith in things like that. And they were there to, to, to accompany me, to tell me it wasn't my time to go or whatever, but I it wasn't. And so, I, so I, I, I'm out. My left leg is gone. I'm, I'm still very confused and, and talking to my wife and some of the things I'm t telling her. So guess what? The next day, the same thing happens to my right leg. Uh, 
But this time the doctors were kind of one step ahead and they actually pulled a vein out of my left arm and they put in my right leg. So they were able to save my right leg. So I'm, I'm getting my feet under me and getting more coherent. Uh, bottom line is I actually end up making a decision for them to, uh, to take my right leg. I just figured that my quality of life was going to be better with uh, two prosthetics than with one prosthetic and a leg that was never going to work as, as it was intended. So Plus, there's still going to be many problems with that leg, if, even right. if they were to save it. Okay. Yeah. And I was just, honestly, I was so tired of going, I didn't want to go through another surgery. I was like, I'm done. So, so I said, oh, let's get rid of this right leg. And so once my right leg was amputated, my health, um, uh, actually, my, the status of my health changed uh, almost immediately. Like I was, uh, within a day, I was taken out of the ICU and up on Ward 57. Uh, but when I, uh, but the other part of the story, when I came out of the surgery for them to amputate my right leg, I got the, the other great news I got was they discovered that my right arm and elbow were broken. So I'd been in a hospital for a couple of weeks before they realized my, my arm was broken and it would require surgery to repair it. So, so that's why I had issues with my right arm and hand. Um, are you uh, right-handed as well? Yep. yep. Oh, okay. So eventually what happened was I, I, in the surgery, I sustained radial nerve and ulnar nerve damage. So my right arm would lock up so I couldn't bend it and I couldn't, the radial nerve uh, prevented me from picking up my wrist. So functionally, I was down to one limb, my non-dominant left arm and hand. I was 210 pounds before I got wounded. I was 148 pounds. Oh my gosh. So uh, Greg Gadsden, uh uh, did not have an outlook, much less, I just, it was like, this is, I mean, what else is going to happen to me? And so um, what I will tell you is that, um, you know, that was my, you know, that was my, I can't take this moment. I quit. I don't want, I did, you know, this is not how I want to live my life. And um, I think that's when you kind of find out about yourself and, you know, uh, the, the reason, one reason why I, I was, you, you afforded me the time to really talk about my parents. You talk about resiliency and you talk about overcoming and the things that they had to overcome. Well, this was my moment, you know, and, and, and it was my character. I, I, I couldn't quit as bad as things as bleak and as bad as I felt and as bleak as my future looked, or at least it looked to me, um, you know, my parents didn't raise a quitter. I wasn't a quitter. And, and so, you know, that's when, that's when I decided, Hey, I'm still a soldier. I, I still want to be in. I'm not, you're not kicking me out. And I started to push back and, and, uh, and push myself. Do you have phantom pain? Yeah, I have. It's, you know, I'm, you don't, I, I have it right now and I'm, I'm here kind of twitching my uh, stumps as because uh, it's kind of bad right now. And that is always just comes and goes. Yep. Yeah. It shows up. Uh, it shows up when it wants to and leaves when it wants to. It's in some ways it's always kind of there, but like right now it's, it's, it's a little more significant than, than normal. That has got to be such a strange feeling that feel something that's not there. That's R right. So if I were to right now, the pain that I'm experiencing feels like it's in my feet. 
like I'm standing or my feet are being squeezed by a th something with a thousand needles. What was your recovery like? Um, and learning to use the prosthetics, that's not easy, right? That's a, that, that takes some time, doesn't it? Uh, well, I was, I was in, I was starting to get into a prosthetic three months, four months after I was wounded. You know, it's, uh, so Tina, it's hard for me to say whether it was hard. You know what? I, I believe that hard is, hard is a personal decision. In other words, you define, you're the one that gives a label that something's hard. It is what it is. And so, you know, I try, I try to not to attach emotion to things like that because it's wasted. And so it, it just what it will, it is what it is. And so. I read somewhere that you credit your wife for a lot of your recovery for what she told you. Is that correct? Absolutely. Again, as I said, she's my classmate of uh, first and she's my bride of, you know, again, of almost 32 years. We have two wonderful children and, and two grandchildren. So we have a growing family. Um, her, uh, her unconditional love has been uh, the, was the bedrock of, uh, of my recovery, you know, my faith my family, my friends, but, you know, she, she loved me unconditionally. And you don't, un, I just can't underscore how that enabled me not to worry about another thing, how that enabled me to focus on getting well, instead of whether or not she was going to leave me or love me the same or whatever. What has this journey been like for your children? I imagine they must have been absolutely terrified when this happened. Yeah, you know, Tina, that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of this experience that I can share and I, and I'll, and I, can, I can share what I think their experience was, but I wasn't 13 and 14 yeah. seeing my father go off to war time and time again. I, I don't know what it's like to see my father come home. So I can, I can always, you know, so I'll never be able to be in their shoes completely. You know, their love, their unconditional love allowed me to recover. You know, uh, you know, one thing that I think America should appreciate is, you know, I'm being interviewed and you're talking to me as someone who was wounded in combat, but my entire family was wounded. Our lives changed. I mean, I, my, I'm legless, you know, outside of my prosthetics. And so everything that we do and did and can have to consider as a family has been, uh, has been changed for irrevocably. And and that is, a, that is the sort of exponential part of the sacrifice that, you know, people don't really think in, in, in kind of, you know, what are the second, third, tertiary effects of, of something like this? They see me and they ask me, you know, is the VA taking care of me? Do you have prosthetics? Rarely someone asks about my family and my kids. 
You know, this is, you know, th this is a, a lifelong sacrifice. You, you received a Purple Heart, right? Mm-hmm. Will you share that with us, what that was like, how you felt? Well, um, it, it's, a, it's a medal. It's not, it's one you don't really want to win, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or um, It's not something you, at, you, <laughs> you go after, right? So, uh, you know, my initial Purple Heart was, was given to me by my, my brigade commander, Colonel Gibbs, Returnal, Brigadier General Retired Gibbs. And, and, and it was sent back with me. So I don't, uh, I don't remember getting it then because I was unconscious. Um, but when he, he would come uh, back to the States and he visited me in the hospital and we did a, a Purple Heart ceremony that my family could be at, my family and friends could be at um, in the Pentagon. And so I, you know, I did receive it in uniform and, and, um, and I, I'm, you know, forever honored that haven't been able to, to have it done that way. You know, um, it, it's, a, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think about it much, but here's w w what, what really makes me think about it is that I am literally a mile away from George Washington's home, Mount Vernon. And he is the, he is the one who created the Purple Heart. In fact, just a little metal trivia, his his bust is the only person that's on any uh, United States military medal. Did not know that. Yep. And that just one of the accommodations you've received, right? And awards. I, I looked, you have a whole slew of them. Yeah. Yeah, I got a few. <laughs> As you downplay them. <laughs> well, you're retired now. What is life like after retirement? Well, it's, uh, it's just as busy or more, I say, um, than when I was in the military. I, you know, I started speaking to groups um, before I retired, and, and, and so I continue to do that um, uh, in, in, in my current, uh, um, current edition. Um, I have a, um, I'm a partner in a small business uh, uh, government contracting business service based uh, called Patriot Strategies and uh, and that uh, that keeps me uh, quite busy and and then I'm also able to um, to support a number of uh, organizations I'm on uh, uh, a few boards and and serve in in, in, in advisory functions to um, a number of um, uh, um, organizations that support veterans and wounded veterans. So, so, so I have a, I have a very busy schedule. How do we everyday citizens best honor the sacrifices of our military? I, it's a, that's a pretty common question. And some, you know, some folks are, you know, the, the most common renditions is saying, thank you for your service. Is that, does that, does that make you feel bad? Or is that, is that trite or whatever? And I, and I say, no, it isn't. Um, and, and, you know, um, it's humbling to always hear thanks. But I, 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 I also say, but what I also say to our citizens is that you have an opportunity. You have your time, your talents, or your resources uh, that you can, uh, you can make overt acts. And, and so whether it's going out to a, a local veteran service organization like the American Legion or or, or, or veterans of foreign wars? Can you volunteer? Um, I mean, look, I, I, 
what I want is take our example of service and serve our community. That's how you help. And you don't have to share that with me is, is use the inspiration of our service uh, to serve our fellow man with your time, talents, or resources. What advice would you give the citizens of our country given the divided intense climate we find ourselves in? And it's really tense, isn't it? It can be, yeah. And um, is look, um, this isn't about who's right or who's wrong. I think all like in anything, you know, the simple saying of the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Well, none of us, none of, no one side has the entire answer. And, and for, and we have to solve our problems together. And so realizing this, realize that we have to come together to solve our problems. Our government sent me halfway around the world to get Sunni and Shia to work together. And I lost my legs trying to do that. And we can't even get together. We can't even get along together here. It's a shame. I agree. Who are your heroes? My parents, um, my wife, you mentioned. My, uh, uh, I mentioned uh, Colonel, Ant Major General retired, uh, Rodney Anderson, Lieutenant General retired, um, uh, Jim Campbell, or just a couple. I've, um, First Sergeant Frederick Johnson, Sergeant First Class, or uh, Sergeant Major retired um, um, Earl Rice, or or Sergeant Major retired uh, uh, Mickens. Look, uh, my soldiers are my heroes. We all have someone to to live up to and to honor, and and um, you know, I I just. Uh, I, I, I used to I used to say I work for you. My job is to help you, enable you to be all you can be, and that's all I want to see for everybody. Do you think your sacrifice was worth it? Yep. You sacrificed a lot. Yep. I would, it it is because because of the like the the men and women you see behind me. I got a chance to serve with all these folks that were willing to do the same thing that I did. What does America mean to you? We are the, we are the greatest country on earth, but we got a long way, we got a ways to go. And um, I just, what, what I take to heart is, um, we, we all must remember this is in order to form a more perfect union. And so that's in the middle that we don't have it all right. And, uh, and we've got to live up to that. We got to keep making it better. Because, because our greatness is about that. We're, we're the greatest because we have been willing to step up for others. But well, we've got to step up to our challenges now that face us. Thank you for sharing your American story. Thank you for having me. Wow, Greg is phenomenal. He is such an inspiration. Greg had so many important things to say. 
One that really hit home for me was, I believe hard is a personal decision. In other words, you define, you're the one that gives a label that something is hard. And now, like me, you've met Greg and you want to continue to be in his circle. You can follow Greg on Facebook at Gregory Dimitri Gadsen, Instagram at Gregory underscore 98, and on Twitter at I'm Greg Gadsen. It means so much to me that you take the time every week to listen to the We The People, Our American Story. Every episode I share with you is important. And if you feel the same, write me a review, tell your friends and family, subscribe. And if you have an American story of your own that you want to share, contact me at tinamccafferty70 at gmail.com. Please join me next Friday for the harrowing yet triumphant story of Kim and her family's escape from the Khmer Rouge. See you then.